Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650s, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Years. War was impossible. France was decimated by the plague as much as England, and a truce of two years was concluded between the two countries. The population soon recovered its losses. The nobles had suffered comparatively little by the plague, and soon returned to their luxurious amusements. Preachers and moralists might declaim against the extravagances of fashion and dress, and say that the plague had been sent as a scourge from God, but the nobles clung to their fashions all the same. It was the people who had suffered by the plague and felt its effects. Wheat was scarce, the price of provisions was exorbitantly high, and yet the law was striving to diminish wages. The life of the agricultural laborer in those days was at best very wretched. The articles of diet were few. The people lived on salt meat half the year. They had neither potatoes, carrots, nor parsnips, their only vegetables were onions, cabbages, and nettles. Spices were quite out of the reach of the common people. Sugar was a costly luxury. We can hardly realize the dreariness of the long winter nights in the dark and ill-ventilated huts, from which the smoke escaped as best it could. The people must have spent much of their time in darkness, as candles were too dear for them to buy. But wretched as his surroundings might be, the laborer was not without intelligence. It was his ambition to send one of his sons to the university that he might become a priest. So general was this custom that Parliament petitioned Edward III to prohibit it because the landlords feared that thus they might lose useful laborers. The distress of the peasantry under the statute of laborers and the tyranny and oppression of their landlords soon led them to form combinations amongst themselves for the defense of their own rights. These combinations were maintained by subscriptions of money. We learn that the laborers gathered themselves together in great routs and agreed by such confederacy to resist their lords. These combinations paved the way for the revolt under Richard II. The agricultural laborers throughout the country could communicate with one another by means of preachers who wandered over the country and who, being men of the people themselves, shared the interests of their class. In attempting to form any true idea of the condition of the lower orders of society in those times, of their hardships and grievances, we are much aided by the poem of William Langland called The Vision of Piers the Plowman. Langland himself was an obscure man of whom little certain is known. He seems to have been born about 1332 and to have been a secular priest. Three versions of his poem exist, the first written in 1362, the last about 1380. It is a long poem, written in the old alliterative meter, that is, the rhyme is at the beginning, not at the end of the words. From a literary point of view, the poem possesses little charm, its great interest lies in the light it throws on the social condition of the times. Langland is an austere reformer. He is not like Chaucer, who likes to look on the bright side of things and to take a genial view even of men's failings and sins and make fun of them. He wishes to make men better 
by showing them their sin in its darkest colours and pointing out the contrast between it and the virtue they ought to attain to the poem is one long testimony against the sins of the rich against the sins of all who do not work if chaucer had any distinct wish at all to make men better he only tries to do it by making their sins ludicrous in langland's poem we never lose sight of the moral the poet has no other purpose in writing than moral teaching what he wishes to teach is simply this that all men must work though the work must differ in kind according to the rank of the worker the knight's duty is to guard the church from wasters and to help the farmer by killing the hares foxes and wild birds the ladies are to sew chasubles to spin wool and flax to clothe the naked and to help all those who work worthily if men will not work otherwise hunger must make them do so there are to be no beggars even hermits must seize their spades and dig the dinner provided for the labourers after they have worked shows us what the peasants had to live on in those days piers says he had no geese nor pigs only cheese curds cream oat-cake and loaves of beans and bran and for vegetables parsley leeks and cabbages besides these the poor people bought peascods beans apples and cherries to feed hunger with these are the things on which they must subsist till harvest time then they would have better food and good ale too langland tells us that the people were beginning to be discontented with this kind of food the beggars would eat only the finest bread the labourers grew dainty and were not content even with penny ale and a piece of bacon but wanted fresh flesh and fried fish and grumbled about their low wages langland is very bitter against the indulgences granted by the priests for men's sins a man can only obtain pardon by good works the merchants must trade fairly must repair hospitals and broken bridges must dower maidens and aid poor scholars he is more severe upon the lawyers than upon almost any other class they take bribes and will not speak unless you give them money first only those who plead the cause of the poor and do not need to be bought can be saved with crushing severity he dwells continually upon the sins of the clergy and like wycliffe wishes for the return of the apostolic purity of the church the pestilence he says came simply as a punishment for men's sins the whole poem is full of allusions to the questions of the day and the severity of its criticism is relieved by no playfulness hardly by a single touch of humour in the form of his poem langland has followed the fashionable poets of his day and adopted the machinery of a dream all that he tells us passed before him in a vision some few touches show that he too was not wanting in some growing sense of the beauties of nature particularly in the opening of the poem when he tells us that he wandered on the malvern hills on a may morning when weary of wandering he laid himself down under a broad bank by a burn side and as i lay and leaned and looked in the waters i slumbered in a sleeping it sounded so merrily it is only the form however that langland has taken from the fashionable poets of his day of their spirit he has nothing the beautiful side of chivalry was quite lost to him he saw only its dark side the luxury and selfish idleness to which it had led he is a voice from the people and as such is doubly interesting to us since most of the chroniclers and writers of those times entirely disregarded the people and spoke only of the upper ranks of society end of section seven in thirteen fifty the english were again troubled by rumours of war the seamen of the spanish ports on the bay of biscay had always been animated by hostility to the english in whom they found formidable opponents to their commercial enterprises they were full of zeal for mercantile adventure and side by side with their commerce they committed many acts of piracy they now assembled a large fleet primarily with the object of trading with flanders but in their way to the flemish ports they behaved more like pirates than merchants and by claiming the dominion of the seas seemed to challenge the english to attack them 
at the flemish ports the spaniards loaded their ships with all kinds of rich merchandise and prepared to return home having no fear of the english for the fleet was strong and their admiral de la cerda by promising liberal pay had succeeded in enlisting a large number of volunteers at schlaus foissac tells us that the king of england hated these spaniards greatly and said publicly we have for a long time spared these people for which they have done us much harm without amending their conduct on the contrary they grow more arrogant for which reason they must be chastised as they pass our coasts his son and his lords were only too ready to engage upon a warlike expedition edward summoned all gentlemen who at that time might be in england to meet him at sandwich hither the queen too came to see them off the english fleet consisted of fifty sail but the ships were far inferior to those of the spaniards edward the third and the black prince each commanded a ship in person for three days they cruised between dover and calais waiting the coming of the spaniards on the third day when they hoped to engage the king sat in the forepart of his ship dressed in a black velvet jacket and wearing on his head a small hat of beaver which became him much he was in most joyous spirits and ordered his minstrels to play before him a german dance which sir john chandos had lately introduced for his amusement he made chandos sing with his minstrels which delighted him greatly from time to time he would ask his watch whether the spaniards were in sight at last whilst the king was thus amusing himself with his knights the watch cried out i spy a ship and it appears to me to be a spaniard at once the minstrels were silenced and the king asked whether there was more than one ship soon the answer was shouted out yes i see two three four and so many that god help me i cannot count them then the king and his knights knew that it was the spanish fleet the trumpets sounded and the ships were ordered to form in line of battle it was already late but the king was determined to engage he called for wine which he and his knights drank and then stood ready to fight the spaniards might easily have avoided the battle but hoping to crush their enemies they sailed down upon them then edward said to the captain of his ship lay me alongside the spaniard who was bearing down on us for i will have a tilt with him the shock of the meeting of the two ships was like the crash of a tempest the king's ship stood firm but the spaniard was much disabled and lost her masts so that the english knights cried to the king let her go away you shall have better than that then another large ship bore down and grappled with chains and irons to that of the king and the fight began in earnest many gallant deeds were done but the spanish ship proved hard to conquer the king's ship was leaking and in danger of sinking only just in time was the spanish ship boarded the english threw all the men they found on it overboard and leaving their own ship continued to fight on board the spaniard meanwhile the prince of wales was in great difficulty his ship was grappled by an immense spaniard and was so full of holes that it was in great danger of sinking the crew was employed in bailing out water and could not make head against the spaniards but the duke of lancaster the prince's cousin formerly earl of derby seeing the danger drew near and fell on the other side of the enemy grappling his ship to the spaniard with shouts of derby to the rescue the ship was soon taken and the crew was thrown overboard the prince and his men deserting their own ship embarked on board the spaniard it was a hard battle for the english as the spanish ships were very big and strong and the spaniards fought with extreme bravery and knew no fear at last victory declared itself for the english the spaniards lost fourteen ships and the others saved themselves by flight when it was over edward sounded his trumpets for retreat and the fleet sailed back to the english coast anchoring off rye and winchelsea the king and the prince landed and the same night rode to the house where the queen was just two leagues distant she was most joyful at seeing them return safely for she had been in great anxiety all day her servants had watched the battle from the hills on the coast whence they could see it well as the weather was fine and clear and they had seen the great strength of their enemy and their fine big ships 
so great were the rejoicings that instead of resting after the battle the king and his knights spent the night in revelry with the ladies talking of arms and love the next morning the king thanked his knights for their services and dismissed them this battle was the beginning of the rivalry between the english and the spaniards for the dominion of the seas the hardy spanish seamen were not in the least oppressed by their defeat both sides however soon saw that the quarrel was to the interests of neither and a truce for twenty years was concluded in london between the king of england and the maritime cities of castile it must be remembered that the quarrel was not at all between the king of castile and the king of england but only between these maritime cities and the english naval power attempts had been again made at a conference at guine between the envoys of france and england to change the armistice between the two countries into a permanent peace edward the third offered to give up his claims to the french crown if the french king would give up his claim of homage for the english provinces in france when the french king refused to do this edward determined to begin the war again philip of valois king of france had died in thirteen fifty and was succeeded by his son john john found the treasury of france already impoverished by the expenses of the war and did not make matters better by his unwise and prodigal liberality his easy-going temper earned for him the name of the good though he brought his kingdom to the very verge of ruin he wanted money for his favourites and his pleasures and when he attacked the people till they could give no more he tried to get money by debasing the coinage that is he caused money containing a large quantity of alloy to be made and obliged the people to take this bad money in exchange for their good money this and his heavy taxes brought great misery and poverty upon the people who were still suffering from the effects of the black death the country also suffered greatly from the free companies which roamed about in all directions committing robberies and every kind of crime these free companies were the plague of the middle ages they were bands of mercenary soldiers ready to fight for any one who would pay them and when in intervals of peace they were dismissed from service they spent their time in plunder in defiance of all laws and government foissart tells us that in the year thirteen fifty one there was the greatest scarcity of provisions ever known in the memory of man all over the kingdom of france but in spite of the sufferings of the people king john was eager for war and anxious to wash out the stain left on the french arms by the battle of crecy edward was equally ready even during the years when negotiations for peace had been going on the truce had not really been observed and both french and english had made many aggressions upon the enemy's country when in thirteen fifty four the congress at guine broke up having accomplished nothing edward began to hasten his preparations for a new invasion of france he had gained a new and important ally against john in the person of charles king of navarre this man was the evil genius of france during the years that followed his crimes and unscrupulous ambition gained for him the surname of the bad he was a vassal of the king of france as he had inherited the earldom of evreux in normandy to secure his friendship king john had given him his daughter in marriage but charles soon incurred the hatred of john by murdering the king's favourite and chief counsellor he had to fly from court and in his absence john invaded normandy and took some of his fortresses charles determined to revenge this injury by aiding edward the third against the king of france he promised to give the english king possession of several strong fortresses in normandy so that he might land his troops there and be able to advance to paris in safety at the same time edward received a visit from some of the gascon nobles who came to ask him to send his son to lead them against the french a great invasion of france by three separate armies was therefore planned one under the black prince was to land at bordeaux a second under the duke of lancaster was to go and aid the countess de montfort in brittany and a third under edward himself was to invade normandy edward the third took a proud army with him to france but he did not do much 
his ally charles of navarre made peace with john so that edward was obliged to change his plans and land at calais instead of cherbourg john was wise enough to give edward no chance of a battle whilst he urged upon the scots to invade england in the absence of its king news was brought to edward in france that the scots had crossed the border and retaken berwick he was obliged to return to resist them and punished their inroad by invading scotland and spreading such destruction wherever he went that the scots long spoke of the time of this invasion as burnt candlemas end of section eight the black prince had sailed from plymouth on september eighth thirteen fifty five with a large band of nobles he was received at bordeaux with great joy by all the nobles of the country the gascon lords were eager to fight under the banner of so brave a prince and to distinguish themselves by feats of arms they had long been annoyed by the inroads of the french and they now begged the prince to lead them on a foraging expedition into france they formed no plan of campaign the expedition was simply undertaken from love of plunder and of fighting for its own sake the prince had the absolute command and had been appointed the king's lieutenant in aquitaine the expedition which he now undertook shows us the dark side of chivalry we see him and his young knights in wanton love of adventure spreading ruin and destruction over the fairest provinces of france on leaving bordeaux he divided his army into several battles these were to march at some distance from one another that they might devastate a larger extent of country in this way they went through armagnac to the foot of the pyrenees then the prince turned northwards to toulouse where he waited hoping in vain that the french might be provoked to battle he next crossed the garonne and went to carcassonne a rich and populous city as large as york the inhabitants fled in terror leaving the city gates open the town was plundered and burnt but the citadel stood firm and the prince passed on without troubling to take it to save themselves from a like fate the inhabitants of montpellier destroyed their own suburbs and the members of the ancient university fled to avignon to seek shelter with the pope narbonne was one of the richest towns in france and almost as large as london it also was burnt and plundered in eight weeks the black prince succeeded in ruining the richest district of france from which the kings of france drew the chief part of their revenue peace had reigned there for more than a century so that the inhabitants were ignorant of war and its horrors now five hundred towns and villages were smoking in ruins the harvests were destroyed everywhere there was devastation and ruin the name of the black prince had become a terror not only to the people whose peaceful homes he had destroyed but to the whole of france laden with booty he and his knights returned to bordeaux here the gascon soldiers were dismissed till the spring when an expedition into poitou was talked of the winter was spent by the black prince with his knights in great joy and festivity there the herald chandos tells us was beauty and nobleness sincerity bounty and liberality but they were not quite idle for in the course of the winter they succeeded in retaking such fortresses in gascony as had been taken by the french it was not till the middle of the following summer that the black prince gathered his men together to start on a second campaign he left bordeaux on the eighth of july with only a small force two thousand men-at-arms and six thousand archers partly gascon and partly english his object was to make another foraging expedition and if possible proceed onwards to join his cousin the duke of lancaster in normandy he went through auvergne northward as far as berry foissac tells us that he found the province of auvergne very rich and all things in great abundance they burnt and destroyed all the country they passed through and when they entered any town which was well provisioned they rested there some days to refresh themselves and on leaving destroyed what remained 
staving the heads of wine casks and burning the wheat and oats so that their enemies could not save anything everywhere they found plenty as they advanced for the country was very rich and full of forage for men-at-arms at vierzon a town in berry they learnt that the king of france was at chartres with a large army and that all the passes and towns on the loire were secured and so well guarded that no one could cross the river the prince then held a council with his knights and they resolved to return to bordeaux through touraine and poitou destroying all the country on their way near romorantin some of the prince's men had a skirmish with some french soldiers whom they routed the castle of romorantin refused to yield to the prince as he was assailing it one of his squires was killed at his side by a stone thrown from the castle the prince was so furious that he swore he would not leave that place till he had the castle and all in it in his power cannons were brought forward and greek fire was shot upon the town till a large tower of the castle covered with thatch caught fire and was all in a blaze then the garrison had to yield but the prince treated them nobly and set many knights and squires at liberty whilst he made the lords who had commanded the castle ride by his side and attend him as his prisoners when the king of france heard that the prince was hastening back to bordeaux he determined to pursue him thinking that he could not escape he left chartres and marched south to intercept him on his way back john was marching almost in a direct line south whilst the black prince was marching from romorantin in a southwesterly direction it was therefore impossible but that they should meet the english however were ignorant of their danger till they accidentally discovered when near charigny on september seventeenth by coming upon a french reconnoitring party that the great french army was between them and bordeaux escape was impossible the prince had only eight thousand men while john had a mighty army of fifty thousand but prince edward would rather fight even against such odds than yield to an enemy all that remained for him was to choose his position well and fight his best the skilful tactics displayed by the prince in disposing of his small force show us that he was something more than merely a brave soldier king john sent sir eustace de ribonmont to reconnoitre the english he brought back an account of the way in which they were posted which has been preserved to us there were two thousand men-at-arms six thousand archers and about one thousand camp followers quartered on a small hill which did not contain two thousand square feet of ground this hill was surrounded by very thick hedges and was divided in the middle by a road a little crooked and so narrow that hardly three men could go up it abreast the road was covered on both sides with high hedges behind which were encamped the archers who were still at work making a new ditch at the end of these hedges were the men-at-arms on foot each holding his horse by his bridle they were standing amidst vines and thorns where it was impossible to march in any regular order before them were drawn up the archers arranged in the manner of a harrow on the left where the hedges and the avenue were not so thick the wagons were piled up one upon another to make a barrier some cavalry were collected on a little eminence to the right that they might attack the enemy on the flanks on sunday morning september eighteenth king john was ready and impatient for the attack he ordered a solemn mass to be sung in his tent and he and his four sons partook of the communion after some debate with his chief nobles it was ordered that the whole army should push into the plain and that each lord should display his banner and advance in the name of god and st denis the trumpets sounded and every one mounted his horse and made for that part of the plain where the king's banner was planted and fluttering in the wind there says foissart might be seen all the nobility of france richly dressed in brilliant armour with banners and pennons gallantly displayed for all the flower of the french nobility was there no knight nor squire for fear of dishonour dared to remain at home and all this mighty force was going to attack a small body of eight thousand men 
mostly simple archers men of the people standing at bay amidst the hedges and vineyards on the little hill when the french were on the point of marching against their enemies the cardinal of perigord who had left poitiers that morning early came at full gallop to the king and making a deep reverence begged him for the love of god to stay a minute most dear sire he said with uplifted hands you have here all the flower of knighthood of your kingdom against a handful of people such as the english are you may have them upon other terms than by battle i beseech you by the love of god let me go to the prince and remonstrate with him on the dangerous situation he is in then the king answered it is agreeable to us but make haste back again the cardinal found the prince on foot in the thickest part of the vineyard and when he asked him for permission to make up matters between him and the king of france the prince replied sir my own honour and that of my army saved i am ready to listen to reasonable terms the cardinal then returned to john and after much eloquent pleading succeeded in persuading him to consent to a truce till the next day at sunrise the king ordered a very handsome and rich pavilion of red silk to be pitched on the spot where he stood and dismissed his army to their quarters for the present all sunday the cardinal rode from one army to another and did his utmost to bring about a peaceful agreement but the king of france would listen to nothing unless the prince of wales and one hundred of his knights surrendered themselves prisoners to these terms the prince could not be expected to consent on monday morning the french almost angrily bade the cardinal be gone and trouble them no more with his entreaties then he went to the prince of wales and said fair son exert yourself as much as possible for there must be a battle the prince replied that such was his intention and that of his army and god defend the right on the whole the cardinal did not meet with much gratitude from either side for his endeavours and he went sadly back to poitiers sunday had been spent by the prince's men in making many mounds and ditches round the ground where the archers stood to secure their position they were much straitened for want of provisions as they could not without danger move from their place to seek them the french on the other hand were well supplied and spent the day in the midst of plenty when the prince saw on monday morning that the battle was inevitable and knew with what contempt the french regarded him and his men he spoke thus to his army now my gallant fellows what though we be a small body when compared to the army of our enemies do not let us be cast down on that account for victory does not always follow numbers but where the almighty god pleases to bestow it if through good fortune the day shall be ours we shall gain the greatest honour and glory in this world if the contrary should happen and we be slain i have a father and beloved brethren alive and you all have some relations or good friends who will be sure to revenge our deaths i therefore beg you exert yourselves and fight manfully for if it please god and st george you shall see me this day act like a true knight with these and other words the prince and his marshals encouraged the men so that they were all in high spirits then the prince retired a little way apart and kneeling down prayed father almighty as i have ever believed that thou art king over all kings and that for us upon the cross thou wert content to suffer death to save us from the pains of hell father who art very god and very man be pleased for thy holy name to guard me and my people from ill even as o heavenly father thou knowest that i have good cause then he was ready to fight sir john chandos placed himself near the prince to guard and advise him and never during that day would he on any account quit his post End of section nine as the battle was about to begin sir james audley came to the prince and told him that he had made a vow that if ever he should be engaged in any battle where the king or any of his sons were he would be foremost in the attack and the best combatant on their side or die in the attempt now he begged permission to leave the prince's side and perform his vow the prince consented and holding out his hand to him said sir james 
god grant that this day you may shine in valour above all other knights sir james then proceeded to the front attended only by four squires he was a prudent and a valiant knight and the order in which the army had been arranged was owing in great part to his advice the french now began to advance before reaching the battalion of the prince they must pass up the narrow lane where scarce three men could walk abreast the sides of which were lined with rows of archers it was certain death for those who advanced first but the french knights were brave and did not fear death two french marshals commanding a body of cavalry fearlessly entered the lane but as soon as they were well enclosed the archers let loose their flight of arrows a deadly and persistent shower came from each side of the lane the french horses smarting under the pain of the wounds made by the arrows would not advance but turned about and were so unruly as to throw their masters who could not manage them so great was the confusion that those who had fallen could not get up again trampled upon by the terrified horses and wounded by the arrows they lay writhing on the ground in agony some few knights were so well mounted that by the strength of their horses they passed through and broke the hedge but still could not succeed in getting up to the battalion of the prince sir james audley stood in front of it with his four squires performing prodigies of valour and stayed not to make any prisoners the first battalion of the french were completely routed for the english men-at-arms rushed in upon them as they were struck down by the archers and seized and slew them at their pleasure as this french battalion fell back it prevented the main body of the army from advancing the next battalion was commanded by the duke of normandy king john's eldest son it was seized by wild terror at seeing the retreat of the first battalion and many knights mounted their horses and started off in flight a body of english came down from the hill and attacking their flank completed their terror the english archers shot so quickly and well that the french did not know which way to turn themselves to avoid their arrows little by little the english men-at-arms advanced under cover of the shower of arrows sent by their archers when they saw the first french battalion beaten and the second in disorder they mounted their horses which they held by their bridles and raised a shout of st george for guienne sir john chandos said to the prince sir now push forward for the day is ours god will this day put it in your hand let us make for the king of france where he is will lie the main stress of the business his valour will not let him fly he will be ours if it please god in st george but he must be well fought with you have before said that you will show yourself this day a good knight the prince answered john get forward you shall not see me turn my back this day for i will always be among the foremost as they advanced the battle grew very hot and was greatly crowded many a one was unhorsed the battalion of the duke of normandy on seeing the prince's approach hastened their flight the king's three sons who commanded it were advised to fly and galloped away many others followed their example though there were not wanting some brave knights who preferred death to flight then the king's battalion advanced in good order the king and his knights had dismounted they despaired of the day but were determined at least to save their honour fighting on foot it was hard to resist the shock of the english men-at-arms but the king fought with desperate bravery and by his side fought his little son philip a boy of fifteen who warned his father against unexpected blows the bravery of the boy on that day earned for him the surname of le hardi the bold he was that philip le hardi afterwards so well known as duke of burgundy king john proved himself a good knight if the fourth of his people had behaved as well the day would have been his own round him his knights too fought with great courage many were slain at his side and others were obliged to yield themselves prisoners the king himself was twice wounded in the face but still fought bravely on many of the english who knew him pressed round in eagerness to take him crying surrender yourself or you are a dead man he was getting very roughly treated when a young knight called dennis morbeck forced his way through the medley and bade the king surrender to him 
then the king turned to him and said to whom shall i surrender myself where is my cousin the prince of wales if i could see him i would speak to him sire answered dennis he is not here but surrender yourself to me and i will lead you to him then the king asked who he was and on learning gave him his right-hand glove and said i surrender myself to you meanwhile the prince of wales had been fighting with the courage of a lion sir john chandos who had never left his side now said to him sir it will be right for you to halt here and plant your banner on the top of this bush that you may rally your scattered forces i do not see any banners or pennons of the french they cannot rally again and you must refresh yourself a little as you are very much heated then the banner of the prince was placed on a high bush the minstrels began to play and the trumpets and clarions to sound the prince took off his helmet to cool himself and his attendants soon pitched a small pavilion of crimson cloth into which he entered wine was given him and his knights to drink every minute fresh knights kept arriving they were returning from the pursuit which was carried even to the gates of poitiers and now stopped with their prisoners at the prince's tent the prince asked eagerly for news of the king of france none had seen him leave his battalion he must be either killed or a prisoner immediately the prince ordered two of his barons the earl of warwick and lord cobham to ride off and learn what they could about the king they soon came upon a crowd of men-at-arms english and gascon who had snatched the king of france from the knight who had first taken him and were now disputing who should have him the king feeling himself in danger entreated them to take him and his son in a courteous manner to the prince as he was great enough to make them all rich the two barons forced their way through the crowd and ordered them under pain of instant death to retreat then dismounting they greeted the king with profound reverence and led him quietly to the prince's tent the prince on seeing his royal prisoner made him a low bow and gave him such comfort as he could he ordered wine and spices to be brought and himself waited on the king the battle had begun at nine in the morning and was over at noon but not till dusk did the english return from the pursuit of their enemies so great was the number of prisoners that the english feared that it might be difficult to keep them all and thought it wiser to ransom a great part of them on the spot such was the confidence inspired by chivalry in a man's word that many were released on their promise of coming to bordeaux before christmas to pay their ransom no fewer than seventeen counts were among the prisoners and six thousand men lay dead upon the field the english encamped that night on the battlefield amidst the dead many of them had hardly tasted bread for three days now they had abundance of all things for the french had brought great stores of provisions with them besides provisions they gained also quantities of gold and silver plate rich jewels and furred mantles the french army had come confident of victory provided with magnificent dresses and luxuries of all kinds that evening the prince of wales gave a supper in his pavilion to the king of france the food served had all been taken from the french as the english had nothing the french king with his son and his principal barons were seated at the chief table and was waited upon by the prince himself who showed every mark of humility he would not sit down at the table though pressed to do so but said that he was not worthy of so great an honour nor did it become him to seat himself at the table of so great a king or of so valiant a man as he had shown himself by his actions that day he did his utmost to cheer the king saying dear sir do not make a poor meal because the almighty god has not gratified your wishes in the event of this day be assured that my father will show you every honour and friendship in his power and will arrange your ransom so reasonably that you will henceforward always remain friends in my opinion you have cause to be glad that the success of this battle did not turn out as you desired for you have this day acquired such high renown for prowess that you have surpassed all the best knights on your side i do not say this dear sir to flatter you for all on our side who saw the deeds of both parties agree that this is your due and award you the prize and garland for it this little speech was greeted with murmurs of applause from every one the french said the prince had spoken nobly and truly 
and that he would be one of the most gallant princes in Christendom if God should grant him life to pursue his career of glory. After supper, the English repaired to their several tents, each taking with him the knights or squires he had captured. They soon came to agreement about ransoms, as the English lords were not greedy in their demands, and asked no more than each man declared he could pay. The next morning they rose early and heard mass. After breakfast, whilst the servants packed up the baggages, their lords decamped, and the army began its march to Bordeaux. The Minorites of the convent of Poitiers took upon themselves the melancholy task of burying the dead. The bodies were carried in carts and buried in large graves in their churchyard. Funeral masses were sung in all the churches and convents of the town of Poitiers at the cost of the good citizens of the town. So was fought the great battle of Poitiers, a signal instance of what a small force can do when skilfully posted and fighting for its life. The French army failed through their excess of confidence in their proud strength. The first rebuff was so unexpected that it struck terror into the whole army and made them fly before a quarter of their number had been really engaged in battle. Of the English, few fought more bravely than Sir James Audley, who was badly wounded. The prince inquired for him after the battle and caused him to be carried in a litter to the spot where he was standing. Then he bent down over him and embraced him, saying that he had acquired glory and renown above them all and proved himself the bravest knight. As a reward he endowed him with a yearly income of five hundred marks. This pension Sir James afterwards divided between the four squires who had fought so bravely with him, and when the prince learned this he praised him much for his generosity. Bravest, and at the same time most modest of all the knights, was the prince himself. Two letters are still preserved in which he gives an account of the battle, one to the Bishop of Worcester and one to the City of London. In each, he tells the simplest story of his victory, taking no credit to himself. In his letter to the City of London, after describing the events which led up to the Battle of Poitiers, he says, For default of victuals, as well as for other reasons, it was agreed that we should take our way, flanking them in such manner that if they wished for battle or to draw towards us in a place that was not very much to our disadvantage, we should be the first, and so forthwith it was done, whereupon battle was joined on the eve of the day before St. Matthew, 21st September, and God be praised for it, the enemy was discomfited, and the king was taken and his son, and a great number of other great people were both slain and taken, as our chamberlain, the bearer hereof, who has very full knowledge thereon, will know how more fully to inform you, and show you, as we are not able to write you. End of section 10. On leaving the battlefield of Poitiers, the little army of English, with many prisoners and rich booty, did not venture to attack any fortress on their way to Bordeaux. It would be honour enough to take back in safety the King of France and his son, and all the gold and silver and jewels they had won. They proceeded by slow marches, as they were heavily laden. They met with no resistance, the whole country was subdued by terror, and the men-at-arms retreated into the fortresses. When the prince drew near to Bordeaux, all the people came out to welcome him. First came the College of Bordeaux in solemn procession, bearing crosses and chanting thanksgivings. They were followed by all the dames and damsels of the town, both old and young, with their attendants. The prince led the king to the monastery of St. Andrew, where they both lodged, the king on one side and the prince on the other. The citizens and the clergy made great feasts for the prince, and showed much joy at his victory. Soon after his arrival the Cardinal of Perigord came to Bordeaux as ambassador from the Pope, who sent a letter to the Black Prince, exhorting him to use his victory moderately and to make peace. During the following winter the Black Prince stayed at Bordeaux, where he and his Gascon and English soldiers passed the time in feasting and merriment, and lavishly spent all the gold and silver they had gained. When the news of the Battle of Poitiers was brought to England by a messenger bearing King John's helmet and coat of mail, it was received with great rejoicings throughout the country. 
thanksgivings were offered up in all the churches and bonfires were made in every town and village as the spring drew near the prince began to make preparations for taking his royal prisoners to england when the season was sufficiently advanced he called together the chief gascon lords and told them what preparations he had made and how he was going to leave the country under their care but the gascons were not at all pleased on learning that he meant to take the king of france away from them to england they looked upon john as their prisoner and did not wish to lose him when the prince could not pacify them sir john chandos and lord cobham who knew well how dearly the gascons loved gold advised him to offer them a handsome sum of money after receiving a hundred thousand florins the gascons consented that the king of france should depart the black prince embarked in a fine ship taking with him some gascon lords the king of france went in a ship by himself so that he might be more at his ease before making up his mind to return to england the black prince had concluded on the fourteenth of march thirteen fifty seven through the mediation of the pope a truce of two years with the regency which was ruling france during the captivity of her king he was thus able to leave aquitaine without fear of its being attacked by the french during his absence the voyage to england lasted eleven days and nights and the little fleet reached sandwich on may fourth thirteen fifty seven the prince with his royal prisoners and his attendants remained two days at sandwich that they might refresh themselves after their voyage their next stopping place was canterbury which in those days none would pass without turning aside to worship at the shrine of the famous martyr st thomas of canterbury in the great cathedral here the king of france and the black prince knelt and worshipped and made their offerings the second night they rested at rochester the third night at dartford as soon as edward the third had heard of their arrival in england he gave orders for preparations to be made for their triumphal entry into london all the great guilds of the city were ordered to appear in procession with the banners the twelve great guilds the livery companies of the city the merchant tailors goldsmiths leather sellers and the unions of the artificers of special crafts were then at the very summit of their wealth and importance they possessed exclusive privileges with regard to their special trade which none might practise except members of the guild admission into the guild was almost impossible as the aim of the guild brothers was to make their crafts monopolies of a few families these guilds were possessed of enormous wealth and ruled the city of london so important were they that edward the third himself as well as the black prince became members of the guild of merchant tailors now the guilds were ordered to prepare a grand reception for the prince of wales and his prisoners each guild went out headed by its warden with its banners borne before mounted on horseback one thousand of the chief citizens went out to southwark to meet the prince the king of france rode on a splendid white courser the black prince was mounted on a little black hobby and rode by the king's side escorted by this great body of citizens they entered london first they had to cross london bridge which was very different then from what it is now it was a stone bridge of twenty arches with a large drawbridge in the middle on either side of the bridge was a row of high and stately houses in the middle was a gothic chapel dedicated to st thomas of canterbury at either end was a fortified gateway with battlements and a portcullis and on the battlements were stuck the ghastly heads of traitors the procession passed over the bridge watched by wondering crowds and on through the narrow streets with their quaint overhanging gabled houses mostly built of wood it proceeded up cornhill where the corn merchants held their traffic along cheapside past the cathedral of st paul's and then along fleet street everywhere the houses were decorated with tapestry hung outside the walls and the rich citizens exposed at their windows their splendid plate and quantities of armour bows and arrows and all kinds of arms through temple bar the procession passed out into the strand which then ran through green fields to westminster here and there on either side of the road were the houses of the nobles and the bishops surrounded by gardens they passed the savoy palace one of the largest of these houses which was to be the abode of king john during his captivity and whitehall then the palace of the archbishop of york 
at last they came to westminster so dense had been the crowd of spectators blocking the narrow streets that the cavalcade could only advance very slowly and though they had entered the city at three o'clock in the morning it was not till noon nine hours afterwards that they reached westminster edward the third received them in westminster hall seated on a throne surrounded by his prelates and barons he greeted john with every possible honour and distinction descending from his throne to embrace him he then led him to partake of a splendid banquet prepared in his honour that afternoon the clergy of london came forth in procession clad in their robes and bearing crosses in their hands and marched through the streets singing psalms of praise for two days prayers and thanksgivings were offered up throughout london and westminster king john had an apartment in the king's own palace at westminster till the savoy palace was prepared for him and his son he was afterwards removed to windsor and then to hartford castle the winter after his arrival splendid jousts were held in smithfield king john and his son as well as the french lords who had been brought as prisoners to england were allowed on giving their parole great liberty in england they amused themselves principally in hunting and hawking in the forests around windsor the number of frenchmen at that time in england led the english courtiers to imitate french fashions before the taking of king john the english used to wear beards and their hair was cropped short round their heads now they copied the french and wore their hair in flowing locks and shaved their beards edward the third and his queen paid frequent visits to the king of france and often invited him to sumptuous entertainments doing their utmost to cheer and console him edward was anxious to release john as soon as possible but he asked such an enormous ransom that it was hopeless to obtain it in the impoverished condition of france the state of france was indeed deplorable the regent prince charles the dauphin had summoned the states-general to meet at paris to do something for the restoration of order and government they proved very unmanageable and complained of the misgovernment of the country of the overtaxation which had ruined the people and of the wasteful prodigality which had emptied the exchequer the leading spirit of the states-general was etienne marcel provost of the merchants of paris he hoped to be able to set on foot all kinds of reforms and succeeded in releasing from prison charles the bad king of navarre charles had managed to gain the sympathy of the people of paris by his imprisonment which they looked upon as unjust he now promised to befriend the people's interests he and marcel harangued the populace of paris and increased their zeal for reforms meanwhile the people in the country were suffering the most horrible poverty the barons who had been taken prisoners at poitiers returned on parole in haste to their estates to collect the money necessary for their ransom to raise this money all the small possessions of the peasants on their estates were seized and sold ruined by their lords the peasants were next subject to the cruelties of the free companies which were now more numerous than ever after the battle of poitiers the disbanded french soldiers the soldiers of the king of navarre many gascons and even many english had formed themselves into companies these were commanded not by common soldiers or by low-born persons but by barons and nobles one was even commanded by the brother of the king of navarre in the absence of their king the barons seemed to have broken loose from all restraint and ravaged the country at pleasure these companies kept the whole land in terror they devastated the country and sacked the cities even paris trembled at their approach the country people hid themselves in caves in the earth to escape them at last driven to despair by hunger and suffering the peasants rose in fury they attacked the castles plundered and burnt them and murdered the nobles with their wives and families it was a terrible and desperate vengeance for the outrages and oppressions of many centuries the nobles had long spoken contemptuously of the peasants as jacques bonhomme and from this the rising of the peasants was called the jacquerie it was soon crushed the nobles forgetting all distinctions of party turned as one man against the peasants charles of navarre laid aside his character of a popular leader and was foremost in massacring the revolted peasants 
marcel alone tried to send them aid as indeed it was in his interest to support the people against the nobility the suppression of the revolt left the country in a more miserable condition than before marcel's position in paris was becoming dangerous he was besieged in the city by the army of the dauphin and to save himself determined to give over the city into the hands of charles of navarre in the very act of giving up the keys he was murdered by the partisans of the dauphin and died after having done something for his country by the reforms which he had wrung from the dauphin after his death the dauphin entered paris but was powerless until he consented to make peace with charles of navarre for the whole country was overrun by english and navarrese soldiers the dauphin was at paris with his brothers no merchants or others dared to venture out of the city to look after their concerns or take any journey for they were attacked and killed whatever road they took the navarrese were masters of all of the rivers and most of the cities this caused such a scarcity of provisions that we are told that a small cask of herring sold for thirty golden crowns and other things in proportion many died of hunger salt was so dear that the inhabitants of the large towns were greatly distressed for want of it by a reconciliation with the king of navarre the dauphin hoped to free the country from the ravages of the navarrese soldiers and to be able to offer some resistance to the english but however deplorable the condition of france might be it could 